You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, hello there. This is very strange because I can't quite see you in this position. <laughs> Oh, the old pro here. There we go. Oh, it comes apart. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Well, that's better then. Thank you. Uh, I'm Rena Weissman. I am with Variety Children's Charity of Northern California, whose preview screening room you're sitting in. And I have been a board member for about 10 years. And with Tachyon Publications behind me as our sponsor, we've been putting on SF in SF events here for over five years now. It's been quite a while. The program's been around for six. We moved here after the first year from New College. Um, I see a lot of new faces in our audience. I just want to say welcome to all of you on behalf of SF and SF and Variety Children's Charity. Um, the reason we hold it here, apart from the beautiful surroundings you find yourself in, is we're also able to raise money for the charity with these events because we get you all liquored up, and I see that's working <laughs> for some of you, which uh, leads me uh, to a great segue. Tonight, we're, we're very happy in honor of one of our guests, Mary Robinette Cole's new book, Shades of Milk and Honey, to have a signature drink on hand. And since I have already seen on the blogosphere people asking for the recipe, I'm giving it out here free of charge. It's called Shade of Milk and Honey, and it is one part f velvet falernum, one part champagne, a little touch of roses, lime juice with the cherry on top, and a plastic mermaid on the side. <laughs> so, and you can mix it up any way you like. Um, and for those of you who don't know, falernum is a liqueur, a white rum liqueur, with lime juice, sugar, almond and clove essence, and the white rum is the base. Very old liqueur, been around since 1890. And judging by the fact that we've already gone through two bottles of champagne, it's a success. <laughs> so, so I throw that out there to you, Mary. You now have your own drink. Congratulations. So. Anyhow, again, thank you all for coming. Like I said, SF and SF has been here for about five years. We're certainly looking forward to, to many more, at least several more, I hope, until Terry gets tired of us, I guess. Um, next month, we will be featuring on uh, Saturday, September 11th, we will have Amelia Beamer um, with her new book, The Loving Dead, and we will also have Mark Van Name. And I feel awful because I cannot recall off the top of my head, but he has done a charity anthology um, that uh, the funds raised by the book are going to this charity. I feel really awful, and I will just make up for it by donating money to it because I can't remember the name. I feel really bad about that. And then October, we've got a couple events. We've got a Litquake event uh, with a silent, uh, I, not silent because it's anything but silent, a period radio uh, comedy called The Maltese Omelette, uh, <laughs> which we're very much looking forward to with authors Michael Kurland, Dick Lupoff, uh, Pat Lupoff will be here, Marta Randall, Cara Black, a couple other actors. So that will be a nice period piece. We're looking forward to that. And that is Friday, October 8th. And then on Saturday, October 16th, we will have a, uh, a very, uh, very good author named Claude La Lumiere here from Montreal, written hundreds of short stories. Uh, he's got a great story collection out. And uh, Karen Joy Fowler with her new short story collection. 
from Small Beer, whose title, again, escapes me. But then I have had one of these Shade of Milk and Honeys already, <laughs> so that's entirely understandable. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Terry Bisson, our moderator for the evening. Thank you. Cool. I assume we're okay on all this stuff, Rick. Uh, I won't go on and on. Uh, glad everybody's here. Uh, you know what the program is. We have uh, two very interesting writers tonight. Our first writer is uh, the winner of the Campbell Award. She's a Hugo nominee. She has a new book which is named after a drink. And she also uh, has a short story book called Scenting the Darkness. Scenting the Dark and Other Stories. And Other Stories. Okay. And um, she's also a professional puppeteer. And I believe a bit of a magician. No, no. no. I mean, all right. Uh, I, I know one magic trick, which I will not do for right. you. Okay. <laughs> uh, without further ado, let me introduce Mary Robinette Cowell. Thank you. Right over to you. All right. Um, before I start reading, I, I did want to let you know that um, I actually recorded the audiobook for Shades of Milk and Honey. And the reason it's important to let you know that before I start is that um, when we were talking about it, I, I narrate as well as, as do the other stuff. Um, and when we were talking about it, we, we talked about whether or not I would do it with a British accent. And um, had they been casting someone other than me, I would definitely have wanted them to have a British narrator because Jane Austen was kind of British. <laughs> and. Um, and I had a British accent, so we, I ran it past them. They said, yeah, let's do that. So I had, a, I had a dialect coach that sat in the room while we were recording and would stop me when I made mistakes. The dialect coach is not here tonight. <laughs> but this is the way I've practiced reading it. So um, just pretend that when you hear the wrong sound that I'm from the North England. <laughs> Shades of Milk and Honey. One, Jasmine and Honeysuckle. The Ellsworths of Long Park Mead had the regard of their neighbors in every respect. The Honorable Charles Ellsworth, though a second son, through the generosity of his father, had been entrusted with an estate in the neighborhood of Dorchester. It was well appointed and used only enough glamour to enhance its natural grace, without overlaying so much illusion as to be tasteless. His only regret for the estate was a fine one, was that it was entailed, and as he had only two daughters, his elder brother's son stood next in line to inherit it. Knowing that, he took pains to set aside some of his income each annum for the provision of his daughters. The sum was not so large as he wished it might be, but he hoped it would prove enough to attract appropriate husbands for his daughters. Of his younger daughter, Melody, he had no concerns, for she had a face made for fortune. His older daughter, Jane made up for her deficit of beauty with rare taste and talent in the womanly arts. Her skill with glamour, music, and painting was surpassed by none in their neighborhood, and together lent their home the appearance of wealth far beyond their means. But he knew well how fickle young men's hearts were. His own wife, while young, had seemed all that was desirable, but as her beauty faded, she had become a fretting invalid. He still cherished her from habit, but often he wished that she had somewhat more sense. And so Jane was his chief concern, and he was determined to see her settled before his passing. Surely some young man would see past her sallow complexion and flat hair of unappealing mousy brown. 
Her nose was overlong, though he fancied that in certain lights it served as an outward sign of her strength of character. Mr. Ellsworth fingered his own nose, wishing that he had something more to bequeath to Jane than such an appendage. He slashed at the grass with his walking stick and turned to his elder daughter as they walked through the maze comprising the heart of the shrubbery on the south side of the house. Had you heard that Lady Fitzcameron's nephew is to be stationed in our town? No. Jade adjusted the shawl about her shoulders. They must be pleased to see him. Indeed. I believe that Lady Fitzcameron will extend her stay rather than returning to London as she had planned. He tugged at his waistcoat and attempted to speak idly. Young Livingston has been made a captain, I understand. So young? He must have acquitted himself ably in His Majesty's Navy, then. Jane knelt by a rosebush and sniffed the glory of the soft pink petals. The sunlight reflected off of the plant, bringing a brief bloom to her cheeks. I thought, perhaps, to invite the family for a strawberry picking Thursday next. Jane threw her head back and laughed. It was a lovely laugh, at odds with her severe countenance. Oh, Papa, are you matchmaking again? I thought Lady Fitzcameron had it set in her mind that the captain was to marry Miss Fitzcameron. He stabbed the ground with his walking stick. No, I am merely trying to be a good neighbor. If you have so little regard for the Fitzcamerons as to shun their relations, then I have misjudged your character. Jane's eyes twinkled, and she pecked him on the cheek. I think a strawberry-picking party sounds delightful. I am certain that the Fitzcamerons will thank you for your courtesy to them. The tall yew hedges hugged the path on either side of, the, of them, shielding them from view of the house. Overhead, the sky arched in a gentle shell of blue. Mr. Ellsworth walked in companionable silence beside his daughter, plotting ways to bring her together with Captain Livingston. They turned to the last corner of the maze and went up the long walk to the house. On the steps he paused. You know I only want the best for you, my dear. Jane looked down. Of course, Papa. Good. He squeezed her arm. I shall check on the strawberries, then, to make certain they will be suitably ripe for next week. He left her on the steps and went to the hill on the east side of the house, making plans for the party as he walked. Jane folded her shawl over her arm, still thinking of her father's thinly-veiled plans. He meant well, but would surely tip his hand to Captain Livingston, who was, after all, several years her junior. She had first met Henry Livingston before the war broke out, when he wintered with Lady Fitzcameron while his parents were away on the continent. He had been an attractive boy, with large, dark eyes and a thick crop of unruly black hair. Though a favorite of Lady Fitzcameron, he had not been back to the estate since, and it was hard to imagine him as a grown man. She shook her head, settled the folds of her muslin frock, and entered the drawing room. The smell of jasmine nearly overpowered her, burning her nose and making her eyes water. Her younger sister, Melody, who wove folds of glamour in the corner, was evidently the source of the overwhelming aroma. Melody, what in heaven's name are you doing? Melody jumped and dropped the folds of glamour in her hands. They dissolved back into the ether from whence she had pulled them. Oh, Jane, when I visited Lady Fitzcameron with Mamma, she conjured the loveliest hint of jasmine in the air— it was so elegant, and I cannot understand how she managed such a subtle touch. Jane shook her head and went to open the window so that the jasmine fragrance could dissipate with more speed. My dear, Lady Fitzcameron had the best tutors as a girl, including, I believe, the renowned German glamorist Herr Scholes. 
it is hardly surprising that she can manage such delicate folds. When Jane let her vision shift to the ether so that the physical room faded from her view, the lingering remnants of glamour were far too bulky for the effect that Melody had been trying to attain. Jane took the folds between her fingers and thinned them to a gossamer weight which she could barely feel. When she stretched them out, they spanned the corner in a fine web. When she anchored the folds to the corner, the glamour settled into the room, vanishing from view. The gentle scent of honeysuckle filled the air as if from a sprig of flowers. It took so little effort that she barely felt lightheaded. Melody squinted at the corner, where Jane had left the web, as if trying to see the invisible folds. Please do not squint, dear. It is unbecoming. She ignored Melody's scowl and turned back to the web. Not for the first time she wondered if Melody were nearsighted. She could never handle fine work, even with needlepoint, and her glamour seemed limited to only the broadest strokes. What does it matter? Melody threw herself on the sofa. I have no hope of catching a husband. I am so abysmally poor at all of the arts. Jane could not help herself. She laughed at her sister. You have nothing to fear. Had I half your beauty, I would have more bows than the largest dowry could settle upon me. She turned to straighten one of her watercolors on the north wall. Mr. Dunkirk sends his regards. Jane was thankful that her back was to her sister, for the sudden flush she felt would have given her away. She tried to hide the growing attachment she felt towards Mr. Dunkirk, particularly since he seemed to have a higher regard for Melody, but his gentle manner drew her to him. I hope he is well. She was pleased with the steadiness in her voice. He asked if he could call this afternoon. Melody sighed. That is why I wanted to freshen the drawing room. The wistfulness in Melody's voice would only be appropriate if she had reached an understanding with him. Jane turned to her sister, scrutinizing her countenance. A gentle glow suffused Melody's delicate features. She stared into the middle distance, as if her cornflower blue eyes were blinded by a radiant image. Jane had seen the same expression on her own plainer face in unguarded moments. She could only hope that Melody had been more cautious in company. She smiled gently at her sister. Shall I help you set the drawing room to rights, then? Would you? Of course. The drawing room already had a simple theme of palm trees and egrets, designed to complement its Egyptian revival furniture. <laughs> For the better part of an hour, Jane and Melody twisted and pulled folds of glamour out of the ether. Some of the older threads of glamour in the palm trees had become frayed, making the images lose their resolution. In other places, Jane added more depth to the illusion by creating a breeze to rustle the fronds of the glamour. Though her breath came quickly, and she felt light-headed with the effort of placing so many folds, the effect was well worth such a trifling strain. Paced in pairs in the corners of the room, the trees seemed to brush the coffered ceiling, accenting its height with their graceful forms. Between each tree, an egret posed in a pool of glamour, waiting an eternity for the copper fish hinted at below its reflection. Simpler folds brought the warm glow of an Egyptian sunset to the room, and the subtle scent of honeysuckle kissed the breeze. When all was settled, Jane seated herself at the pianoforte and pulled a fold of glamour close about her. She played a simple rondo, catching the music in the loose fold. When she reached the point where the song repeated, she stopped playing and tied the glamour off. Captured by the glamour, the music continued to play. 
wrapping around to the beginning of the song with only a tiny pause at the end of the fold. With care, she clipped the small silence at the end of the music and tied it more firmly to the beginning, so the piece repeated seamlessly. Then she stretched the fold of glamour to gossamer thinness until the rondo sounded as if it played in the far distance. The door to the drawing room opened. Melody leapt to her feet with a naked expression of welcome on her face. Jane rose slowly, trying to attain a more seemly display. She placed her hand on the pianoforte as the room spun about her with the lingering effects of working glamour. But only their father entered the room. Hello, my dears. The plum brocade of his waistcoat strained across his ample middle. He looked around the drawing room in evident pleasure. Are we expecting company? Melody said. Mr. Dunkirk said he would honour us with a visit this afternoon. Did he? Her father looked befuddled. But I saw him not fifteen minutes ago, passing through our fields with the Fitzcamerons. They looked for all the world as if they were going hunting. Are you certain you did not mistake his meaning? Melody's face soured. His meaning was clear, but perhaps he preferred to spend the afternoon in the company of a lady than a farmer's daughter. Jane winced as Melody flew from the room. Good heavens! What has gotten into the child? Mr. Ellsworth turned to Jane with his eyebrows high. Does she think the whole neighborhood must dance attendance to her whims? She is young, and... Jane hesitated to commit her sister's potential indiscretion to words, but as her sister had not taken her into confidence, and as Jane feared for Melody's state of mind, she continued on. I fear she may be developing an attachment to Mr. Dunkirk. Does he return it? I do not know. Jane plucked at the waist of her frock. Certainly his behavior has been above reproach in every instance of which I am aware. Mr. Ellsworth nodded, evidently satisfied with that reassurance. Then we must hope that Melody will not embarrass herself while we wait for this fancy to pass. The front door slammed. Jane hurried to the window and peered out. Melody strode across their lawn, heading for the fields between their home and Banbury Manor. Jane caught her breath. I fear that is what she has set out to do. Her father looked over Jane's shoulder. I will go fetch her before she can damage our neighbor's good opinion of her. Jane nodded, though she wanted to tell her father to let Melody do as she would. Let the headstrong girl make a fool of herself. The rational part of Jane knew that Melody was not her obstacle to Mr. Dunkirk's affection. Jane was too plain and too quiet to engender any interest in him or any other gentleman. Jane turned from the window and sat at the pianoforte. She loosened the fold about it, silencing the distant song. Quietly she began to play, losing herself in the music. Her fingers played across the keys and stroked thin folds of glamour on the ebony and ivory surfaces. Colours swirled around her in answer to the sound. She welcomed the lightheadedness, which came with too much glamour, as a distraction from her cares. When the front door opened, Jane kept her attention on, on the pianoforte. She did not want to speak with Melody and have to comfort her. But that was unjust. Melody could not know how her actions affected Jane. Bringing the song to a close, she looked up as the colours around her faded. Mr. Dunkirk stood in the door to the drawing room. His face was alight with wonder. Forgive me, Miss Ellsworth. I had told your sister I would call on them later than I intended. Jane's heart pounded with more than the effort of glamour, and a flush of warmth flooded her face. Mr. Dunkirk, you have just missed her. 
She has gone for a walk with my father. Jane rose with care, pretending that grey blobs did not swarm in her sight. She would not swoon in front of him. But please be welcome. May I offer you tea or a brandy? Thank you. He accepted the brandy she offered and raised the glass to her. I had no idea you were such an accomplished musician and glamorist. Jane looked away. It is an idle amusement, sir. Nonsense. Music and the other womanly arts are what brings comfort to a home. He looked at the palm trees and egrets adorning the drawing room. I hope to have a home such as this one day. Jane put her hand on the piano to steady herself, keenly aware that she was alone with him. Indeed, though I would venture to say that Robinsford Abbey is most gracious. But it lacks that comfort which a wife with the gift of glamour might bring. He inhaled the scent of honeysuckle and exhaled it in a sigh. Other men might seek a lovely face, but I should think that they would consider exquisite taste the higher treasure. Beauty will fade, but not a gift such as this. Do you not think that glamour might be learned, whereas beauty is innate? Glamour, yes, but not taste, I think. He smiled and inclined his head. It was a conversation close to this topic which prompted my tardy arrival here. Have you had occasion to meet Mr. Vincent? I am afraid you have the better of me. Ah, I thought Miss Melody might have mentioned him. Lady Fitzcameron has retained his services to create a glamural for his dining hall. She is a fascin he is a fascinating fellow, who studied with Herr Scholes and has taken, taken commissions from the Prince Regent. Stunning talent, really. Did Melody meet him, then? It seemed odd that her sister would fail to mention it. Visitors to their neighborhood were rare enough to be newsworthy, but to have such an accomplished glamorist in the vicinity was a significant event. I thought they met, but perhaps I am mistaken. In any case, Mr. Vincent had much to say on the subject of glamour, which I think you might find to be compelling arguments in my favor. The front door opened again, and Melody flung the door to the drawing room wide. Her face was red and stained with tears. When she saw Mr. Dunkirk, she uttered a cry of dismay and fled the room. Jane closed her eyes. Poor Melody. What must she think? To see Jane quite alone with a man for whom Melody so clearly had an attachment must seem as a betrayal. When Jane opened her eyes, he had set his glass down to greet Mr. Ellsworth. Excusing herself, Jane said, I feel that I must check on Melody. I hope she has not suffered an accident, Mr. Dunkirk said. Jane's father harumphed and mumbled that Melody had twisted her ankle while walking, to which Mr. Dunkirk replied, Then I will leave you to tend to her. He took his leave, only pausing at the door to say, May I call again? Of course, Mr. Ellsworth beamed. Come whenever you like. Then I will see you soon. Mr. Dunkirk bowed. Your daughter is a credit to you, sir. When the front door closed, Mr. Ellsworth said, Well, Melody needn't have worried after all. A credit. <laughs> Jane smiled. Indeed. <laughs> You. You're still going. Okay. Do it. Um, so the other thing that I have for you this evening, in Chapter 10, Mr. Vincent uh, does something that, that is called a shadow play. Um, Sounds like a rascal to me. Yeah, complete, <laughs> complete rascal. Um, and this, the particular shadow play that I have in the story, I'm, gonna, I'm going to abandon the microphone. I apologize to the podcast. Uh, can, can you Mary, would you like to... 
No, no, I'm good, but I just need to get my stuff. Oh. <laughs> I guess I could carry it. Uh. Normally I do banter while I'm, I'm setting this up. Um, so the, uh, the tiny little puppet show that I'm doing um, was originally done in... Uh, 18, oh, excuse me, 1784. Actually, I could still use another set of hands here, it looks like. Put that back in. And again, to the podcast, I apologize. Can we see it from here, or should we get out there? I'd go out there. Yeah, right. Um, I'm going to be standing, so that's good. So the... Um, so this, this was originally done in 1784, and... Uh, play was by a man named Seraphim, which I'm saying wrong, he's French. He's dead, he's not gonna care. <laughs> um, but it was, it was the most popular shadow puppet play, and, and shadow puppetry was, was quite the art form. Uh, there were whole cafes that, that were dedicated to, to this kind of thing. Um, it was hugely, hugely successful and popular. And, and the sort of thing that Jane Austen very likely would have seen um, here we go. So, um, yeah, I guess that's about everything you need to know about it. Um, I have a light source that I normally use that I left at home, so normally I will turn it on and then the puppets will magically be there. I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> You'll totally see this and it's really, really ugly right now. Um, okay. All right. So, uh, so in chapter 10, Mr. Vincent performs this particular shadow puppet show, uh, but he does it with glamour. All right. Make sure we got everybody here. Puppets. <laughs> When I was doing on tour, you know, you, you go into a gymnasium and it's fantastic because everyone's, all the kids are watching you and it's this great thing. Oh, you guys really did close your eyes. You're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you can go ahead and open them. Um, so, uh, and, and we're set up one day and you, you hear the kids coming in. They're like, oh, puppets, because you completely transform the gymnasium. And then out of the back, we suddenly hear puppets. I hate puppets! <laughs> I have lost all fear of audience after that. <laughs> all right, there you go. Okay. We'll pretend that didn't happen. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la-la-la, tra-la-la-la-la-la. Tra-la-la, excuse me, tra-la-la, excuse me, tra-la-la, pardon me, yeah. Uh, is this the road to London? Eh, nay, this here's the road to London. That road you're on don't lead nowhere but to the river. To the river, <laughs> tra-la-la. Oh, well, um, can one cross the river? Aye, duck swim across it, quack, quack, tra-la-la. <laughs> Well, uh, how deep is it? Well, a gravel, gravel touches the bottom. <laughs> Tra-la-la! <laughs> well, uh, how far across is it? Well, when you're in the middle, 
You're halfway across. Tra-la-la. Tra-la-la. If I were on the other side of the river, I'd tra-la-la you. <laughs> tra-la-la-la. Ooh. Tra-la-la. Tra-la-la. Tra-la-la-la-la-la. Tra-la-la. Tra-la-la-la-la. Tra-la-la. Tra-la-la-la-la. Tra-la-la. 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 Whoa! Tra-la-la-la-la. In the original, there were uh, crocodiles and ducks and things like that. Um, And these are made out of the uh, traditional Trader Joe's boxes. (laughs) Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.